What is up, my friends? Welcome to Drop In, where we have open, authentic conversations about all things mental health, including how you actually heal and grow from trauma. My guest, coming back again, is a licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor in the great state of Maine. She is the main character in the brand new podcast, Welcome to Group Therapy Pod. And she consumes three Dunkin' Cold Brews per day. I don't know if she's obligated to do that with her sponsorship or she just does it out of pleasure, but she's my good friend and your favorite TikTok and Instagram therapist, Kristen, not your average therapist. You really lowballed me there for three cold brews. It's It can be like more like four or five, depending I'm on I'm disturbed. Day. I'm disturbed and like, worried. And maybe this episode is just an intervention. I should probably see a cardiologist. We're a little worried about that at this point. A lot I'm, of Dunkin' I'm, Cold Brew. I am contractually obligated, yes, but also I have sold my soul out of pure love to Dunkin', so. Me and you have always been Team Dunkin'. Yes, always. We love it to our very heart. There's mm-hmm. someone else on our Welcome to Group Therapy pod, mm-hmm. another Kristen who is Team Starbucks. We're trying to win her over. It's a long play. We'll get her at some point, I think. When she was in Maine, she only drank Dunkies, so... I'm, I, I'm working on it. She's going to come around. She she's go, She's definitely going to come around. Thanks so much for coming on again. I've been seeing you a lot lately as we work on this <laughs> new, new podcast. Welcome to Group Therapy Pod. Listen, enjoy. It's a lot of fun so far. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of roasting. I love the side roast. Wow. It's really good. Um, it's, it's nice just having like four different personalities come together and also four different backgrounds come together and try to like have a conversation about a topic that maybe not all of us have mm-hmm. that experience in. And so I've been loving that. Plus I love all I, of you. Oh, that's so sweet. I'll pay you Feelings. for saying that. <laughs> I know it's it's been so fun so far, even like when we were talking about the idea of it, of us coming together to sharing our thoughts all as mental health professionals on mm-hmm. all the topics. It's, it's going to be fun. I'm excited to see where it goes. And this topic for today, I know we were chatting about it a little bit before we hit record, how you actually heal and grow through trauma. You know, a lot of people out there wonder about that, of what does getting on the other side of trauma look like? What, what does that process look like for you? It is messy. Mm. It is hard. It is scary. It is rewarding. It is amazing when you finally get through it. Um, It's hard work. I wish it was easy. It's not. Um, I've been doing my work since I was 17 years old and I realized, oh, my childhood wasn't really that great. Um, And I first started seeing a therapist um, and I've been seeing a therapist on and off now. I'm just about to turn 31. And so I'm not going to do that math. It's why I'm a social worker. Um, but for for many years, I've been seeing a ther- I've seen five therapists so far. All have served their different purpose in my healing journey. Um, but it's been messy for sure. I'm glad you already dove into that because a lot of people will ask that question: like, can you be a therapist if you've gone through trauma? Do therapists actually get their own therapy? And you've already answered both those. Yeah. 
we we do and i mean usually i don't think i've met a therapist who hasn't been through something it may not be trauma but mm-hmm. hasn't been something through something that's life changing or hard or struggling with our mental health or whatever that may be i think the most important thing is if you're if you want to be a therapist is really starting that healing journey because if you have raw open wounds or stuff stuffed in a box up in a closet that you've put five other boxes hoping you'll never look at again, mm-hmm. it's going to come out mm-hmm. um, because a client may say something that may send you straight back to seven years old and you have to have the skills to be able to pull yourself back to present day, which is something that I've had to do over the the course that I've been working with clients is there have been times where I've been shot back to a core memory and a not great, a not great core memory. And I've had to say, who Kristen present, you are here. You're Mm. 27 years old. You're not seven. And Mm. you need to push that to the side and address this after this session. So you can be present with your client and being able to do that is super important because you can't kind of have your own stuff impacting your sessions. Absolutely. And I think about that as a sign of when we need therapy or mm-hmm. we have unfinished business is mm-hmm. when we're losing, you know, connection with the present moment, time and space, yeah. drifting into nightmares. Or, and those can even happen during the day where our mind will start replaying traumatic moments. And for those of you listening, we're going to be talking about our shared traumas and traumas that we've been through. So if if you're going to get triggered or you might feel like this episode might be a little much to listen to, I do want to put that out there now that we'll be talking about death and, and different sort of family dynamics that we've occurred separately, but it could be triggering for some folks out there. You had mentioned you had been going through this since childhood. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to share all the details of what mm-hmm. you experienced through childhood, but what for you were some of the signs, even if as you were looking back, that this was trauma? Yeah, I, for me, it was all normal mm-hmm. up until I was about 12. And I, I will always remember this because I still love the show today. I was watching Law & Order SUV at 12 years old. First of all, let's just let's just nod at the fact that I was allowed to watch Law & Order SUV at 12 years old. That shows you the lack of oversight sometimes I was having. Um, But I remember watching that and going, huh, oh, hmm. And I remember that moment happening so clearly. I remember sitting in my childhood bedroom watching this and just kind of having that wave come over me of like, some things weren't quite right. And then as I kind of started getting that insight at 12 years old and 13 and 14 and 15, and luckily in those, those years after, so my, my dad ended up getting custody of us when I was about nine years old. And so that's kind of when a lot of my trauma stopped, but I still had the trauma with the relationship with my mother Um, that continued up until I was 22, 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in, and varied throughout the years. But as I got older, and it was like every year that I grew, I noticed more and more and more of things that weren't okay. I started seeing 
mothers of my friends act very different than my own mother was and wondering, huh, why, why is mine different? Mm-hmm. Not just like different, you know, different hair color or just different, you know, attitudes or the way that they look, but different like to the core. Mm-hmm. Why was I spending weekends with my grandmother and not my mother? Why did she disappear for a year and I didn't hear from her? Mm-hmm. And so through those years, I started getting more and more insight until, and even after, so even like when I was 22 and I moved, I moved to Maine, which put a huge barrier between us, I still had insights after insights after insights. Yeah. It's so interesting as you look back, like you can start to fill in gaps mm-hmm. of the differences again, as you look at other families, other parents, but you also can notice certain symptoms for yourself. Yeah. Were there symptoms that you noticed for you? I guess I'm wondering, like, how did you notice you coped through that? Because mm-hmm. all of us adapt through our trauma in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it might have helped us at one time, and then it might hold us back later. Yeah. Well, when they say hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. I had clear vision as I got older of my childhood. And one of the things like I, I learned in like the starting of like my symptoms was when I was in college and learning like childhood manifestations of mental health and learning like manifestations of anxiety are things like bedwetting, um, rapid mood changes and stomach aches and gastro issues. Well, when I was living with my mom, I was seven years old on stomach pills mm. because I would have stomach aches every single day to the point like I was crying. Mm-hmm. And part of that was, you know, the diet that I was fed. But also like looking back, I'm like, whoa, like that was the first sign of, of stress in mm-hmm. me at seven, eight years old. Um And I remember like sometimes it comes up in family discussions now of like, yeah, remember when you were seven on stomach pills? Because like, and I was like, yeah, I do. And then it, I mean, it starts to change into the way that I viewed myself and and the way that I viewed myself in the world. Um, I, for a very long time, I had flashbacks and nightmares and I would look over my shoulder. Um, I was never in a place where I was ever unsafe, Mm -hmm. but there was always this this person in the back of my mind, this voice saying that I was never going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And that continued all through until, like, again, till I got to college and I got to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had my safe spaces and that was really great. Um, my dad created a very safe home for me. Um, and that was really awesome. But even having that, it was outside of my home where it was like, what's going to happen now? Where is this going to happen? Is my mom not going to call again or show up for a visit? Um, and then again, you add all of that that self-esteem and that self-worth when you got, when you got mommy issues and mm-hmm. it gets really messy and gross. I really appreciate you sharing that. There are things I was paralleling when I was thinking about you know, the own, my own trauma that I experienced growing up, my brother had bipolar disorder and 
would have full manic episodes and was in and out of juvenile detention um, growing up and really had a hard time staying out of trouble and staying regulated. And my parents were always pouring so much energy into trying to help him, but he, he caused a lot of problems like through, through our youth, we were only separated by a year. And it was that feeling. It was funny when I left for college that it felt like peaceful and safe for the first time. Mm -hmm. And even so with my brother, like again, being in jail a few times, being, um, put into the state hospital at one point, even at times when he was gone, it was just like being in that home where you experience so much turmoil, so much chaos mm -hmm. that it, it was hard to ever find peace while being in that home. And par part of the ways I had adapted to that was trying to be the good kid, right? Trying to be like, because my brother was the quote unquote bad kid, the troublemaker. Mm -hmm. I was the good one. So I could, yep. you know, do no wrong. And that people pleasing behavior was very much a response from all the trauma and things I'd witnessed, you know, growing up with my brother. Yeah. Recovering people pleaser right here. I thought if I got good grades, my mm. mom would love me. I mm. thought if I never got a detention, my mom would love me. I thought if I did all of the activities, maybe my mom would come to one of my games. Mm. Um, maybe, just maybe if I did enough, she would love me. And and I think she did in her own twisted, mm -hmm. consorted, how she could at the time and how she knew how to love. But it wasn't what I needed as a, as her child. And it played so much into that where I started... I gave so much of myself away and energy specifically like to her that it did leave an impact. I mean, for when I graduated high school, I lived with her throughout my entire college, like not lived like, but I would come home for weekends, live with her in the summer, stuff like that, because she didn't care. And I got to do whatever I wanted. And it was just, it was closer to my work. I didn't have a job. I, I didn't have a license, none of that. And so it was like, it was kind of like mutual like usage. Like I got to stay with her and I knew how to navigate her. Um, but it was, it was like just always feeling like if I just did more. Right, right. If I showed up for her more, if I offered her more money, if I offered her more help, if I offered her whatever, she would love me in the way I needed to be loved. And that never happened. That mm -hmm. could never happen because as I got older, I also realized she was never going to be able to love me in the way that I needed her to. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What, what a powerful reflection. And I think that's, I'm sure there's listeners out there who can relate to different pieces of what we've shared so far. It's mm -hmm. coming to those realizations did you come to them in therapy? Was it through just self-reflection, journaling? How did you start the process of healing through this trauma? It was all of the above. I would say that most of my healing came with age. Honestly, it came as, <laughs> let's get sciencey here for a second, as my frontal lobe really started to develop. Um, as I got older and started to see the world very differently, mm. um, it came with my education in the mental health field um, through my master's degree. It came with space too. Um, a lot of it came when I moved to Maine 
um, when I was 22, almost 23, that separation really just insight. And a lot of my healing, like I, I was in therapy, I've been in therapy forever. Um, and I just, I remember talking to her about like, I just don't understand why she doesn't love me. And I remember my therapist saying, and this was something, it wasn't out of the blue because it was something we had always kind of teetered around. And she was like, are you expecting her to love you in a way that she can't? And that dived into a deeper conversation. And that's when I realized like she's loving me the way that she knows how. It doesn't make it okay. Mm-hmm. But it's also like I started putting pieces together of her relationship with her mother. And her relationship with her mother was not great. It was very back and forth. But my relationship with my grandmother, my maternal grandmother was amazing. And so there's kind of like this trend on my mom's side where mothers don't get along with their daughters. And so when I started putting those pieces together, it started to make sense. Mm -hmm. It didn't make it okay. Um, I'm not in a seat where I sit there and say, wow, this is great. This is okay. Thumbs up. But it makes sense. Um, and And that took time. There wasn't, I don't think that there was like a revelation moment for me. Um, there was a revelation year, but there wasn't like a revelation moment. Mm. I I would love to hear more about that year. What was yeah. it about the year that kicked stuff off? Oh, so the year of 22, the year I turned 22, um, that was, so we'll start in October. So October 25th is my birthday. Um, I came home from college on my birthday and there's a thing that I've always done. I always get dressed up. I always look really nice, put myself together for my birthday. Got off the train, my mom, and I had already talked to her on the phone and she said nothing to me. Got off the train, got into her car and she looks at me and she goes, why are you so dressed up? And I said, nothing. Mm -hmm. Proceeded to drive the half hour home. All of that said nothing about it being my birthday. Again, I don't, I don't know why. Got home, got ready to go out some friends. She's like, where are you going? I was like, oh, I'm going to Hurricane, which is like my local stomping ground back home. Oh, okay. Blah, blah, blah. Went out, came home, came in the house and she was like, did you have a good time? And I said, yeah. And so again, said nothing, came home came back out. I came back out and said, you know that today's my birthday? And she goes, yeah, I realized after you left for the bar it was. And I said, so at no point you thought it was appropriate to wish your daughter a happy birthday. Well, no, not really. So that was, that was one. Then there proceeded to be some really toxic incidences from then until May, um, which I don't really want to go into, but we're really like unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, then she proceeded to not show up to my college graduation, mm-hmm. um, told everyone else that she wasn't coming except for me, um, came home because I was living with her at the time to drop some of my stuff off, still with my cap on. Mm-hmm. And her, I will always remember this, her shitty boyfriend at the time said, hey, congratulations, I'm proud of you. And me and him had gotten into it many of times in the last six months of that. She said nothing to me. 
And that was the first time I remember my dad ever talking shit about my mom because all growing up, he was always like, that's your mother. Like, don't talk bad about her. Like he never spoke ill of her, nothing. And that was like the first time he'd ever said anything. Um, then there was another huge incident over the summer where the cops were called very unsafe for me. Um, wouldn't take accountability for it. And then when I went to move to Maine in that following August, it was, I was packing up and I said, okay, I'm leaving. And she said, okay. And then proceeded to walk back into my bedroom to start cleaning it up. Didn't say goodbye. Didn't say anything. And then I left and moved to Maine. So that was like, that was like the year, like that was like the year of, you know what? Mm, I think we're done. I think that was going to be my question. First, of course, I appreciate you sharing all that because it's painful. Mm. It's painful when you're not getting the love that's somewhere inside you, you know, you deserve, especially Mm -hmm. in the way that we think about a mother or motherly figure. So you experience all that pain. Did it motivate you to leave? Did it motivate you to change the way you think about your mom? Did it motivate you to create distance? Like, how did it? gear you towards a change for the better? Yeah. So I was leaving because at the time my, my husband and I were, we were engaged. I was moving to Maine because I was graduating. I'd know where to be. I was like, let's be together. Um, so I was like, let's go. So I just moved. It didn't really motivate me to leave. I've never really had roots. So like leaving my hometown didn't really feel any sort of way, but the distance did help in like, we barely spoke. Like I would maybe come home and see her every once in a while. Um, But we were still in contact. It was just very limited. Like I would go months without speaking to her. Um, And it wasn't until three days after my son was born is when I decided I'm no contact. I'm no longer engaging. And so that was January of 2018. And I haven't spoken to her since. because so of all of this. That's, and I, I think that's what I was feeling is like, so the constellation of those events, something inside you had mm-hmm. kind of clicked over of like, I deserve better. Mm-hmm. I deserve more. I deserve different than putting mm-hmm. my energy towards this. Mm-hmm. And then it turned into my child deserves more. Mm-hmm. My, like, I, I know how to navigate that house fire. I know how to navigate that relationship. But when I added another little life into this, into this mix who didn't have that choice, it was suddenly now I was protective and she was no longer, she could hurt me all she wanted, but she was not going to have the opportunity to do the same to my child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It changes your complete Mm -hmm. perspective when you have a kid and bring them into the world. In some ways it's, it's funny how having a tangible child like manifest into you protecting your own inner child. Yeah. Yeah. It it was a game changer. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember, I remember calling my therapist like two days after it happened um, where I said, I'm done Um, because I was feeling not guilt, but I was feeling like my inner child was crying because she just wanted her mommy. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, again, just wanted my mommy to love me. And I remember calling her and saying, and she, and I was like, this has nothing to do with me just having a baby. Like, like none of that. I said, I need an emergency session because I just did this and I'm struggling. Um, 
And so she ended up with my, my therapist, who's still my therapist at, the, at this moment, really helped me through that um, and navigating and navigating that um, and just giving me a space to be angry um, that this was my reality. Yeah. And it, so much you've said I've related to in terms of like needing the right type of space and needing mm -hmm. time separation. I know a lot of us who go through trauma or hard times, people will throw the phrase, which we can cringe at. It's like, well, time heals everything. It's like, I don't, I don't agree with that at all. I think time mm -hmm. is part of the mixture of things that can mm -hmm. be added that can help, but we need the right kind of space. And yes. a lot of times we need to separate ourselves from that toxic environment or create if we're still living in it, which is an Instagram question we got coming up. Thank you so much for all your Instagram questions as always. But you need the right kind of caring connection and space to be able to reflect of yourself, reflect of what you've been through and understand like how this has impacted me and what do I want for myself now? Yes. A piece I was going to relate to, which I, I don't think I've talked about in details on any podcast I've been on. I haven't really talked about too much on here is, is the anger. I know especially... Mm -hmm. Gosh, after my dad died of brain cancer, I didn't go to therapy for over like a year and a half. But everyone that knew me during that time, right after he died, he died winter break, um, my sophomore year in college. And I just went right back to college. Like I went home, he died, went right back as if nothing happened. Everyone that knew me the year after knew me as Angry Juddy. Like my nickname is Juddy. But I was just, I was angry all the time. Yeah. And it's because I wasn't, I wasn't talking about things. I wasn't expressing the pent up emotion. I wasn't expressing the sadness. It's just like I tried to go back to regular life. I was just mad. And the same thing after my brother died. I My brother died of a drug overdose. And there's a lot of unknown and mystery around his death because he was left outside in the freezing cold uh, in the winter of Northeast Ohio. He had OD'd in someone's apartment and they had just carried him outside and just left him out there to freeze to death. Um, obviously I still to this day, you know, even thinking about that, the lack of humanity that people showed and I've had to, in my own therapeutic space, in my own reflection, you come to peace with things that are horrific. Mm -hmm. And for me in that, that journey has been mentalizing as you named as the ways you mentalize your mother and her history i mentalize the people that that showed uh, a lack of compassion towards my brother mm -hmm. and just throwing him outside in the snow um i mentalize them even though i don't know them personally but they're suffering their own usage their own addiction their own you know histories that I don't even know, but I, I think about that and I, you have to come with peace with things that are really hard. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of mystery and unknowns and questions that you never get answered when you go through trauma. Yep. But it, it, it's for me, the anger was just, it was too much to bear. It's too much to bear when I yep. think about those people and I would just be infuriated and disgusted mm -hmm. and think about scenarios of like, if I ever saw them, you know, cause someone's, you know, hurt your loved one or at least showed a lack of compassion towards your loved one. Yeah. But then again, part of me, it was mentalizing and understanding that they were suffering too in their own ways and they have to live with their actions, which is sort of the ultimate suffering. 
Yeah, and I think for those type of things, it's it's a both and situation that that we can we can mentalize those and intellectualize those and sit there in that. But we're also allowed to have that anger and those feelings. And finding the balance between the two can be really hard because if we're intellectualizing everything, then we're not actually experiencing the emotion mm-hmm. and 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 the anger or the sadness or whatever. But if we're only sitting in that feeling, that gets really messy. And like you said, like it, it over, starts to overtake you. Like there are still days. I just saw this TikTok the other day and it was like, it was just talking about like, I just want one day where I can just scream at my mother and tell her everything that she did to me and how she made me suffer and how she hurt. Like it was this whole thing. And I read it and it like took the wind out of me because Mm -hmm. I was like, there are days I wish I could do that. And as I get older, they're few and far between. Um, But I also think that that's valid because I am hurt and I'm allowed to be angry, but I also know that me doing that is not going to accomplish anything other than me releasing that because she hasn't changed. She's not going to listen to it. Um, but it is hard when, when you're in that midst of healing or midst of trauma and you are so overcome with those emotions and you just want to say, fuck it to the world. Right. And, right. and we get so engulfed in that. Um, yeah, yeah I, it's so funny you say that because the first thing that came to my mind, I had an awesome psychoanalytic therapist when I was down doing my, um, finishing up my internship and my doctoral study at the University of Miami. And she let me have that space for a few sessions, I can remember, where I vented out my anger. And just like in a way that I never had before of like really releasing it in that space. And when I came on the other side of that, it was like, I no longer had this fleeting thought, like I'm gonna find these people that showed Mm -hmm. the lack of compassion towards my brother. It was like, I had released, you know, a demon in a way that it's like, I I didn't need to waste my energy to actually confront these people, Yeah, you know, to find out exactly what happened or to, just tell them like they're going to have to live with their actions. It, it, it's like my therapist allowed me that space to truly be angry about the thing that had made me so upset for so long. But I know so many of our listeners out there, like, have you had that space? Have you been heard in that way that someone just validates that emotion you feel? And it's like, I, I'm one of those people that do agree, like anger is almost always connected with sadness, but it doesn't mean the anger's not justified. But oh, for sure. I think it's just rare that we have that space really with someone where someone completely validates mm-hmm. that emotion for us. And I think that's a unique thing therapy does give us. Yeah. And that's what like they always talk about, like if we take it even further back, right, to ACEs and mm-hmm. they talk about like, Having someone that you can talk to, whether like obviously a therapist is is the gold standard because mm-hmm. they can hold unconditional positive regard, they know the appropriate reactions, all of that. But having at least one person who will listen to you talk about your traumatic event or your trauma makes your trauma symptoms decrease. It's not going to cure it. Mm-hmm. But kiddos, like kiddos who are given the opportunity to, 
to talk about and express it rather than hold it in, there it's called post-traumatic growth. And it's kind of like that space after post-traumatic stress and that trauma, their chances of entering post-traumatic growth are exponentially better because Mm -hmm. they have that ability to talk about it when it's happening. Um, That's why I encourage, like, even in my own personal life, when I see shit hitting the fan for people, I'll step over lines and be like, hey, should probably get them to talk to someone because this is going to be really helpful, even if it's for two, three months. Doesn't have to be long term, but having that space, like I've had, I had friends and family members that I confided in um, to really just talk about those things. And it wasn't until I was 16 that I talked about some of my trauma for the first time because I didn't have that space. I held it in. I didn't even know what it was until I was 13, 12, 13 years old. And so then to be 16 and finally speak it out loud. And then be 17, 18 before I reach therapy and have that unconditional space where I can just, again, yell, scream, and cry and call my mom every name in the book. And someone's not coming at me and being like, well, that's your mother. Mm, Right. Right. It couldn't have been that bad. That's my favorite. Ugh. I know I'm cringing just hearing that. It it is the validation. It's just a validation of someone Mm -hmm. really sitting with us and been like, this should have never happened. And someone just to be there with us validating whatever comes out. Again, that's the unique air that therapy creates. That again, Mm -hmm. I am with you. We can have good connections with friends, family members, other people, partners, But therapy, when it's at its best, especially around trauma, it's like you're creating this connection where you can really air out all the things that have happened to you and express really how that's impacting you, which we're going to get into here in a minute, talking about the different types of trauma therapy. So for you or for other me, for other people out there, like, then what does healing from trauma actually look like? Does that mean, you know, all your symptoms are gone forever? You never get, you know, flashbacks or have emotions come up? What what does that mean for you, Kristen? For me, healing from my trauma is that my trauma no longer has control over me. It's no, it's not that it doesn't exist because I will always have a traumatic background. I will always have a traumatic childhood. There's no way to change that. No therapy is going to change what has already happened. But what I have done is I have it is my trauma no longer controls my day to day. Yes, it peaks its head every once in a while. It I get triggered. I have a mini flashback or like they there's that trend on TikTok with the Taylor Swift song. It's like, oh, something happens and immediately I'm seven years old sitting at the kitchen counter. Sometimes that happens. But what has happened is I've done enough healing that I can pull myself right back to 30. And say, whew, that's that's what healing looks like. Healing is just that my trauma no longer drives the bus. It's a passenger. Mm-hmm. I'm driving the bus now. Present Kristen is now driving the bus. Past Kristen is a backseat driver who likes to nitpick how I take my left-hand turns every so often. I love the way you describe that because I think you're spot on. And I think 
you know, we can also begin to understand how trauma has impacted us, how we see ourselves in our relationships, mm -hmm. how we see ourselves in the goals we set for ourselves. Like you have an understanding of how it all connects together. But I'm with you. And the same holds for grief. Like, you know, when my brother's birthday just passed and on his birthday, I, of course I get sad. And sometimes, yeah, I still get a little bit angry. But it doesn't dominate like it used to. It, it's not a daily thing. I, I feel more grounded in carrying on his legacy and my dad's legacy in different ways, right? Trying the best I can as a flawed human, mm -hmm. a father to a two-year-old, someone out there trying to help people with their mental health. Like I've fully moved forward in you know writing this these next chapters, how many, however many I've left in my own narrative that it's just I'm not stuck. And often, I'm sure you experience the same when I work with clients who are in the beginning part of processing their trauma, it's almost like they have one foot in the past and maybe not even one full foot in the present in their life. And as you move forward, you'll just you see them being fully invested in their life because they've been able to close that past chapter. Yeah. And that does. That takes validation, takes processing, takes all the things we're going to talk about in all these different styles of trauma therapy, but so many different versions of this can help us move forward. Yes, for sure. So let's do it before we get into the awesome first again, I want to reiterate. Thank you so much Kristen for sharing parts of your story. I, even now, like, I know you so well. We talk every single day, but I heard parts of your narrative that I didn't know. And it, mm. it's a privilege for you to share those with me and, of course, the people out there listening. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for willing to sit in it with me. It's a beautiful thing where, again, even us as mental health professionals, we can share how we've grown because we have. All of us have our stories and there's some things that uh, we can talk about and other things that are sort of inappropriate to share the details of, but I appreciate you painting the picture for us. Before we get to the awesome Instagram questions, a lot of people wonder, what are the different types of trauma therapies out there? We're going to fly through some of the big ones. I know there'll be someone out there of like, you forgot internal family systems. You're, you're right. This list could be massive, but here are some of the big ones. I want to get your take. I'll quickly name it, define it very quickly and get your take of what your experience has been with it. Yeah. If at any, if you've had any at all. Prolonged exposure therapy. So this is sort of classic belief that the way we get through our trauma is by the re-exposure of the feelings, sensations, uh, imagery, and sometimes going to different places that are connected with our trauma and that we can reach desensitization by this, again, prolonged and repeated exposure to the things we try to stuff down and void. What are your thoughts? I think if a person is in a place in their recovery and healing, I think that sometimes that that can be effective. I think for individuals who may have severe trauma, um, that might not be a great, personally, may not be a great um, fit. Like if you would have sent me 16 back to the home where my trauma stemmed from, that wouldn't have been a good experience. But I went back when I was pregnant. I went back, I drove back by myself to show my husband where I had grown. And because I had already done all that, I now cr I created like a new memory, mm -hmm. kind of like, I know we'll get into it. But like, I don't know, like a little EMDR there, I like changed. 
I changed my memory of that place um, mm. in a lot of ways. It's still there, but I came back as a healed human and where I had the power. And so I think that it can be, it can be effective when used appropriately. Mm-hmm. And when people have, I think, have developed the coping skills to help them get through it. So it's like throwing yourself into a pool. If you don't know how to swim, you're going to drown. So it's the same thing. If you don't have the skills, you're going to drown in that trauma. And it could, and it, the chance of it making it worse is really high, but mm. it could be, I think, I think with the right, with the right people. Yeah. And I think, I think that's an important message with all of these is like any of them could be more or less effective with you. And that holds true with any psychotherapy. Some flavors and styles of psychotherapy are just going to land better on you. But I tend to agree, like prolonged exposure therapy for some people might be too overwhelming. And I know they teach grounding and they Mm -hmm. teach different techniques. A lot of practitioners that I know um, that do this style of therapy, they teach you ways that you can kind of regulate through it. But I'm also with you that it, it could be for some. Trauma focus. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's good for those individualized, like one-time traumas. Um, not, I don't think it's good for like what we consider complex. Like yeah. if like a car accident or a house, like I'm not saying that those are any less severe because they are severe, but I think one-time traumatic events may be better for those, for the prolonged exposure versus something that may have happened over the course of 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess we'll bridge to that one. One that tends to look better based on the research I've absor- absorbed for the complex is narrative exposure mm-hmm. therapy, which the, the main goal is that you're able to chronologically the best you can speak the narrative of what you've experienced. And that, of course, includes traumatic memories and events, but also positive ones. Um, And you're trying to recapture your humanhood, your self-respect, and your identity through all the things you've experienced. This is one that I I think a lot of people in our field feel works really well for complex PTSD that is more than just one or two events. Yeah. No, I don't actually have a lot of experience, particularly with narrative. I've heard really good things. Um, do you have it? Do you have experience with narrative? I do, I have experience with narrative therapy, and I, I think that is what I got the first time I went to therapy after my dad's death. Because it very much was in that style, um, and it was really helpful because it was. It was like talking through almost all the events I experienced with my dad starting way back. So it it had to be this approach. And I really liked it because it wasn't just centered on my dad's death and just like talking about just that part. It was like our whole relationship, Mm -hmm. everything that had led up, you know, through him battling cancer and everything else. I, I like this as like a general thought of working with clients who have gone through again, many difficult things in a relational sense. Yes. Because to understand relational trauma, again, it's not one event. It's like you go back. And as a therapist, I like starting back with what are some of the first memories you remember, you know, with your mother, with your father, like that can have a lot of weight in understanding what someone's been through. Yeah, for sure. 
Definitely. Trauma-focused CBT. So it's, I know you have some things to say about (laughs) this, but helping recognize false beliefs, feelings, thoughts, sensation, memories, and places in um, basically cognitions or unhealthy behavior patterns that we may have developed as a way to cope, but again, can we can run into some trouble with. What are your thoughts around this? <laughs> well, I'm trained in TFCBT. Um, I got trained several years ago. Um, I think my personal opinion is that TFCBT are made for individuals who are in privileged situations um, because TFCBT usually requires a safe adult. Usually it's it's used with kiddos under the age of 18. It can be modified to use with adults. Um, but it requires an adult who is safe and, again, who can have the regulation to hear the narrative that is created in TFCBT, which a lot of the, the community that I work in, um, I work in rural Maine, I work in high poverty, severe and persistent mental illness. A lot of the kiddos I attempted to use this on couldn't find a safe adult in their in their family. And it says that you can use a teacher or whatever, but no kid is going to want to talk to their teacher about their trauma. Um, I think it is really good for individuals who, who have really stable home lives, um, yeah. really healthy home lives. Um, and I have seen it work. I don't want to mm-hmm. say, I don't want to, I don't want to crap on it too much because I have seen it work. Um, I just have a double edged sword working in the community that I do, um, yeah. of, I, that it works with a specific population. And I appreciate you sharing that. That's what I love about having this podcast is like you talk to different mental health professionals. They have very different opinions mm-hmm. as we all do because we work in different settings with different populations. But I appreciate you sharing that because yeah. that's a nuanced perspective based on the clientele that you've seen that yeah. it can be not great for people that you know come from poverty or dealing with systematic oppression and all yeah. kinds of things like that. That's my, my hot take. I like it. I like those hot takes. We love that. What about somatic therapies? So somatic therapies, um, it really focuses on how trauma is stored in the body. Mm -hmm. So it aims to really establish an emotional and a physical release in that how you experience something, you can feel it in your body. Mm -hmm. And we know this is true. We know this happens. Mm -hmm. And yet, I, I haven't personally gone through a training in somatic therapy. What are your thoughts on it? Neither have I. I mean, we all know, um, I mean, it's a combination of Bessel van der Kolk and I think Brene Brown also said a version. It's the body keeps the score and the body always wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think that that can be really helpful because we do see how trauma shows up in the body. But a lot of clients who may have a trauma response may disconnect from their body. So it's again, mm-hmm. teaching them how to reconnect mm-hmm. with their bodies. And because a lot of times clients will disassociate from their bodies the minute that they start to have a sensation or they right. shut down immediately. So I think that that is important um, to really heal that, that body and emotional health connection. Absolutely. I, I To me, I go back to, why there's so many studies out there that show yoga 
is as healing for mental health as psychotherapy. Mm. And I, I think it's because you're learning to accept and feel and validate and express what is in the body. Yeah. So I'm all about it. I think it's really great. I just don't have the professional training experience, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. It makes sense that if you have somebody who took you through connecting with what you're experiencing in the body in any moment, that that could be really helpful for some people. And I could also see some people that maybe because they're so disconnected from the body, they want to start with the narrative. And this is the, you can't say one of these is going to be better for you than the other, but they exist. And that's why we're highlighting them. Yeah, for sure. The next set that I want to touch on quickly is using the visual field. This has been really kind of the last 10 years-ish mm -hmm. in our field of ways that our visual field is tied to trauma and memory. So the one a lot of people have heard of is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing EMDR. Yep. I can never say it the long way. No. But I made it through. But EMDR, you use these horizontal eye movements mm -hmm. as you think of your trauma and it helps desensitize and sort of disentangle the strong reaction we have again, to these trauma memories and images. Uh, connected to it, I'll just tie these two together, is accelerated resolution therapy. Mm -hmm. I did a training probably about six months ago on this. It's it's similar to EMDR. I'm not really going to go through the differences. I, ART uses more of a gestalt visualization, but the same eye movements. It's kind of like a slightly different flavor, mm -hmm. but again, both effective, both backed by research. ART helped me like in my own trauma. So I was like, yo, this is, I really liked it. I this thought it was the great. Good stuff. Uh, hey, it worked on me. So it's like, sometimes that's a good way to be like, I can get behind something that's making me feel better about my trauma. Yeah. But what are your thoughts, EMDR, ART, the eye movement? Yeah. It's one of those things that like, uh, it seems so hokey. Like mm -hmm. I remember when I first heard about it, I was like, you're going to tell me by moving my eyes that suddenly I'm going to feel better about my trauma. And like, I wanted to be a fly on that wall when they figured out that doing something like that was going to be helpful. Like, how did that work? But I've heard wonderful things. I am not personally trained in it. Um, I would love to be, but it's one of, it's one of the trainings that um, I've, I just consistently hear good things about, especially like, like one of the skills like like just to calm yourself is the butterfly tap just mm. something that everybody can do without needing to like do super in-depth trauma training or trauma like work um but i've heard really good things i have several friends who are trained in it um, mm -hmm. i think it's probably the one that i probably stand behind the most mm. out of mm -hmm. all of them um but yeah no, I, I just think it's, I, I remember describing it to someone. I was like, it's going to seem hokey <laughs> because it does. Like you're telling yeah. me that by following my fingers back and forth, that suddenly I'm going to like reprocess this terrible memory. And you're like, yeah. Yeah. But you know, in backtracking in something that we accept now, it's like, it's like the more we learn about our neurology neurology and the neuroscience of our brain and how the body and brain works, the more it makes sense. Like, can you imagine the first person like way back when it was like, you're going to do this deep breathing and you're actually going to feel a little more relaxed. But yeah. it's like, now we know 
all at the base of our lungs, there's so many neurons that innervate and activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Yep. And again, it's not to say that for everyone out there, I know there's someone out there like, I don't like deep breathing. That's fine. But the science behind why it works is that you activate those neurons at the base of your lungs and it helps activate the parasympathetic, the rest and restore system. And that's what we're learning about the brain is there's, there's things we can do in the visual field to help yep untangle and desensitize to trauma it's so cool well, the and science going, and going back a lot of times people don't like deep breathing because they don't feel comfortable in their own bodies it all connects right so, it, so it, yeah so valid so valid but and the other another one we'll touch on really quick before we jump to the instagram questions brain spotting same kind of thing but you're using the visual field instead of moving your eyes back and forth doing horizontal movements you're just they're assessing when you look in different places in your visual field that it will bring up different feelings and sensations emotional and different sensations in the body that they're suggesting you were looking in these spaces when you went through different traumas. And so it's tied together and you can help untangle by using the visual field. Super fascinating, super cool. Again, and good research to back it, which is what we rely on in this field. I honestly, until this moment now, I have no idea what brain spotting is. And so now I'm gonna be like, every time that I look at something, I'm like, is this what I looked at when I was seven? Is this the part of the visual field yeah. I was tuned yeah. into, this upper to, left corner? I'm going to have so to dig into fascinating. So cool. So cool. Our field's always growing and expanding. Yes. That's why mental health and science are so great, tied together for life. Instagram questions. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for filling out that question box. As always, how can I gain confidence working with trauma survivors as a new therapist? Mm. It's learning how to just to sit at first um, in order in order to really start to work with with trauma survivors, you need to know how to sit with the uncomfy and you need to be very aware of your body language as well. Like those are probably the two big things that I tell people like these are the two things that you have to hone in on first, because if you can't sit in the uncomfy of sometimes the most listening to some of the most heinous things that have happened to someone and your reaction is to like be really uncomfy and move and like see it on your face. And there's, there's a balance in that because I think that there is like a validity to our clients when they see a reaction, but also being mindful of that reaction. Mm -hmm. um, because if a client can sense that you can't handle what they're telling you, they will shut down and never come back. Um, mm -hmm. but that's the biggest piece is learning how to first set, but also like educating yourselves in the areas that, that you may not feel strong in, um, educating yourself and finding out, okay, where is it that I'm like, where are my strengths and honing in on those, but also finding out where your weaknesses are and saying, okay, what can I do to build this? I, I totally agree. And if there's only... There's one other thing I'd add. I was like, this is where I think also having a frame, what, you know, what, it could be one of the ones we just named, but a psychotherapy frame, because it's your roadmap of what you're going to do. And again, I know we all know the relationship is the most important thing 
to a client's healing and growth. But you also got to have a roadmap of what are we doing here and why are we doing it? That's where I think getting that three-day training in, you know, ART, EMDR, you know, uh, narrative-based exposure therapies, any of them could be very helpful for you to feel confident of, I'm going to use this map here. Yes. And that, again, that doesn't mean you forget you're a person, you forget about the skill that you name, because I agree, if you don't have that skill mm-hmm. of just get getting used to being in someone's suffering, sitting with them, and just, again, validating their experience, I don't think the roadmap matters at all. But when you're first starting, we, we need the map. Yes. You need to have a clue of what's what's coming here. Yes, 100%. Another awesome question here for clients with CPTSD, which I'm going to... I'm going to jump on this one first and then hand it off to you. What are the realistic recovery rates? Is it possible to fully heal? So I say this a lot during lives. I'm sure you say it too, is CPTSD is not a DSM disorder. Mm -hmm. It is recognized by who? The World Health Organization as a disorder. So there's sort of this thing of like, and there's controversy from experts in our field is, CPTSD different enough than PTSD? Does it also share qualities of BPD, borderline personality disorder? Mm -hmm. What are the differences? Whatever. I'm just going to say, I like to, I think the conceptualization of CPTSD as, again, a a lot of events over a longer time period Mm -hmm. is different than PTSD, even if some of the symptoms are similar. Just a couple of the symptoms that people name that are tend to be different from someone with CPTSD is that there can be much more um, emotional reaction in trouble in relationships. Yeah. And again, a lot of this is in our field forming and debating and people are having conversation. But I'll, I'll say one more thing before I hand it off to you is that we know in general, and this was a cool study that was done, just looking at a, a bunch of people, people in therapy, not in therapy, but in 24 months following um, traumatic experiences, like just it, it, they looked at one time point and diagnosed a bunch of people having trauma. And they went into the future and were like, two years from now, how many of those people still meet criteria for you know having trauma? of them had recovered. They no longer met criteria. Does that mean they had no symptoms? No, but they didn't meet the DSM criteria or the WHO criteria. In 10 years, 77%, again, the majority of people no longer met this criteria. And this includes people going to therapy and not going to therapy. It's just interesting to think about and reflect Mm -hmm. of most people get through the trauma to the point where they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I, I think that that's true. I mean, the reality is, is you can't change your history. Mm-hmm. So you can't change that you may, had, you may have had some terrible shit happen in your childhood. But again, like we say, as you take those steps in the healing process, you can you can change the way that you see it in a way. Again, you're not going to make a traumatic event a happy event, but you can gauge the way that you can see it, your power control, all of that. Again, to the point that you do not meet DSM criteria. I no longer meet DSM criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. 
I mm-hmm. met it for a very long time in my teens and my early 20s. But since I've done that healing, I could go somewhere and get diagnosed and PTSD would not show up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that doesn't mean that my trauma doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But it again, it no longer has a hold. And this is, I'm going to tie in another question here because I think the conversation relates. Someone else asked, how can I progress with CPTSD when EMDR is hard to fit into my schedule? This is my general thought where I know there are lots of people out there slowly healing from their trauma with space, time, changing their environments, maybe talking it out with friends every now and then. But There are also plenty of people out there who haven't dedicated the focus Mm -hmm. and it takes courage. Mm -hmm. It really does. It takes a lot of courage to sit in your trauma and go towards it and prioritize Mm -hmm. that I'm going to work on this because it's activating and triggering and difficult. Mm -hmm. Anyone going through trauma therapy, shout out for you. It's not easy. But even in the second question where they're like, it's hard to fit in my schedule, part of me wants to just validate Maybe there's an aspect of you that's avoiding it because it's so Mm -hmm. activating and that's okay. And it makes sense. But I also, there's so many people out there. I encourage you, you want to get this behind you and Mm -hmm. psychotherapy is the space with a trained professional to do that. Mm -hmm. And and that's the thing is like therapy can make it happen quicker. Mm -hmm. Time can make it happen but it Mm -hmm. might be an additional five or 10 years on that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And again, like there are lots of reasons why people can't access treatment for many reasons, but it's also saying, okay, if EMDR is something that you can't quite fit in, what can you be doing now? Because Mm -hmm. you can, I also tell people like, it doesn't mean that you can't be doing nothing. There's uh, there's things you can be doing. Um, It just might not be the intensive trauma therapy that you might actually need. So instead, you're taking baby steps when instead of taking leaps and bounds because that's what you can do right now. Mm -hmm. You're journaling. You're working on emotional regulation. You're trying to be a little more authentic and expressive Mm -hmm. with the people in your lives. I I think there are other things out there for people instead of just ignoring your emotional state altogether. Yes. Cool question here. Really want to get your thoughts on this. How can elementary schools support kids with trauma? What are some practical ideas for staff? Stop labeling your kids as the problem children and seeing them as humans. Love that. Um, Teaching mindfulness in our elementary schools. Um when you do and obviously like i understand when when kiddos are traumatized they do have they can have behaviors it's how it manifests it's a very common manifestation um but even instead of like obvi- and obviously we have to keep our classroom safe and we need to keep them on track i get that i'm not a teacher props to teachers never Prop. want to be a teacher props to you but there's also this piece of If you notice a kid in your class is having a rough time, instead of labeling it as you're being disruptive, you're being a problem child, yes, you might have to deal with it in the moment to manage the behavior, but then checking in with them and saying, hey, buddy, 
seems like you were having a really rough time in math class. What's going on? Mm-hmm. Sometimes, again, having one caring adult, because I bet you those kids might get yelled enough at home. Mm-hmm. Just most often they're already getting yelled at at home. And again, I'm not saying that you don't have to have classroom management. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, one positive adult in a kiddo's life change is one protective factor for them. I absolutely agree with so much you just said. I, and I think one way you can do that, and I've seen people, shout out to my friends out there and clients who are their teachers, but one way you can do this is allow just a quick labeling and teaching labeling of their emotions. Mm-hmm. Can you name your emotion for me? Are you frustrated? Are you angry? And I've seen teachers have them on the walls. And th- I think that can be a powerful intervention in a moment. Yes. Instead of, again, the labeling being, you're a problem child, you're disruptive, is be like, in this moment, can you tell me what you're feeling? Point to you know these feelings up here on the wall. Can you name it for mm-hmm. me? Again, I know you're managing all these kids and you're getting pulled a million different directions, but even just that minimal thing of like, can you name it? It's powerful. It's powerful people to be able to express in a second what they're feeling and what they're naming. It's better than the alternative of saying you're disruptive. Again, using those use and the labels the other way um, and basically putting a bad label when they're feeling something for a reason. You might not know you're not their trauma therapist or whatever, but also to the powers that be, I'm with you. Teach regulation in schools. Yeah, I, I think regulation. Again, I love art. I love gym. We need those. I'm definitely not on the board of cutting those things out. But if there's anything everyone needs, it's how do you regulate the self? Mm-hmm. Mindfulness. Mm-hmm. We know this. There's schools who are already doing this. They tend to be more privileged, but you can look these studies up. Tons of schools are incorporating mindfulness. And again, I know this goes into the principal and to funding and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's worth it. I don't think it costs a lot to get someone to come in and teach mindfulness and regulation. It's mm-hmm. not like you need things. It's just the time and the space. There's an amazing TED Talk, if you haven't listened to it, on mindful teaching mindfulness in schools. It is probably one of my favorites. And like, I mean, just looking at elementary schools now versus when I was in them 25 years ago, oh, I just had to do that. I was like, oh, like the fact that there are teachers out there who have feelings on their walls. I'm like, what? Oh, no, we didn't. No, I didn't have I didn't have that. I know I'm a lot older than you even, but like that we didn't in the 90s. No, no, no. we had that. There's none of that 90s. No regulation. Like like none of that. And so like that's been such a huge change as well. Like there are changes. And and again, I understand that teaching is difficult. and again, different different areas of schools um, in different areas have different privileges. Mm-hmm. But again, sometimes just having a space for a kiddo to just express things and be able to then focus on school can be really helpful. Absolutely. And I'd argue the same in corporate America. Mm-hmm. We, listen, you can have positive working environments. We talked about that on the <laughs> Welcome to Group Therapy podcast, episode one, tune in. I got a few more questions to get to. I had to shut out our other <laughs> podcast though because we're having so much fun over there I as know. well. Um, let's see. How? Oh, this is a really good one. We touched on it a little bit, but how can you recover from trauma while still being in the household that caused it? 
that one's mm. hard. Mm. Um, again, if you are if you are a child, so if you're listening to this and you are under the age of eighteen, and you rely on your parents or guardians for a lot of your things. Some, I always tell clients, we have to do the things we have to do for survival at the end of the day. Um, I also think it's important to make sure that you find your own safe havens, to make sure that you find your own safe areas. Um, if you have the ability to create boundaries, create them and try to hold to them again. Toxic families are toxic families. Um, and you have to gauge what is safe in your home. Um, but we have to find ways. So if we're in a burning house, we have to find a way to put a blanket over us to keep ourselves from getting scorned. Um, and sadly, that's not going to protect you all the time. And, and I hate to say that, but that is, that is the reality when we're living in that burning house. But what we can do is take things into account to help mitigate those things. So yeah. if you have friends that you can stay over at their house every so often, if you have friends that you can escape to that are healthier and happier families that, that, that kind of like, I remember doing that. Like I had friends that like, I was like a second daughter, um, that finding those things are going to be helpful, creating what we call preventative factors, getting involved in things at school to take up your time to not be at home. Um, those type of things are sometimes those, those are the things that get us to adulthood when we have a little bit more freedom. Absolutely. I agree with all that. We, we create the bridges we can yep. outside in the connections and we widen our exposure to other people, other situations the best we can Yes, because it's hard. It's very hard when you're stuck in the same home and the same dynamics to realistically say you're going to be able to change that person or put down boundaries with that person. We can try to put down boundaries and I'm still an advocate, but there are certain situations where some of the ways you may try to put down boundaries may make it worse and may be better for you to try to put as much energy as you can to other safe people outside yeah. the home. Yeah. A few more questions here. Is it true with trauma therapy that it gets worse before it gets better? Yeah, sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've met people where it hasn't, but most of the time, yeah. You start, it's like having a wound and you start poking at it. You're going to make it angry. Um, it's going to, it's going to have a reaction, um, but it does, it does get better. You got to get through that messy part though. Um, and once you do, it feels so much better, but that's where a lot of people quit. A lot of people quit when things start getting really hard and you're like, no, don't quit yet. Like you're so close. This is, this is the hardest part because you're opening up that box that you've so neatly packed away. I totally agree. The metaphor that's always stuck with me that was taught to me in grad school was think of your trauma as the nasty, gross stuff at the very bottom of a cup. And it's just sitting down there resting. It's been resting down there for a while. And the cup is kind of like clearish, but a little murky to get that stuff out. When you scoop it, the water gets way darker. It gets way messier. I totally believe in that metaphor mm -hmm. to get the gunk out of your cup. The water's going to get darker and messier. We're feeling the things like you said, we've had mm -hmm. packed away and pushed away. But on the other side of that, this is a weight 
that again, it goes from being a hundred pound weight to this little itty bitty yes. one pound weight. And again, I'm with you and I, you've said it so many times during this episode. It's not that it's completely gone forever. No, you still have the trauma memories. You still know it happened, but it does not impact you the same way. Yeah. Absolutely. Last question here before we hit the road. How do you manage to be a badass and afraid of space at the same time? This this was asked by our good friend, Dr. Kristen Casey Dude, or, or K10. Space is terrifying. I don't understand how people are not terrified of space. You and her want to like go up with Elon Musk and just travel to space. And I'm like, nope. I'm going to keep, it's the same thing about the deep ocean. I don't want to go there either. Like there are things we don't know about and let's not piss them off. We've seen Independence Day. <laughs> We've seen Independence Day. Piss them off enough and they will shoot us with laser beams. Listen, I know me and me and Dr. Casey are on the same page. I'm like, if I could get blasted into space literally right now, I'd be like, I'd be waving to y'all as I'm shooting out of this it earth. It gives me a panic attack just thinking about it. I just love it. I just love thinking about the unknown and the epic adventure that awaits. No. I, I think heart, yeah. I, I, I love me? that. Stuff. Have you met me? The unknown does not work for me. Like when those videos and, and photos with NASA came out with the, like the furthest away, I was like, mm-mm. Like, See, I I already, <laughs> like I already know that I'm insignificant. Like, I don't need to know even more that I'm insignificant. Like, yeah, it made me feel like wonder. And I love this. That's why different forms of therapy work better for different people because we're different. We're different. That those images filled me with wonder and possibility. And for you, it's like dread, (laughs) fucking panic and dread. Like, what was the movie that came out over the summer with um, Jonah Hill and? Leonardo DiCaprio. Don't look up. Don't look up. That movie, I had an existential panic attack for like the week following because I like it sent me into like a tizzy. I like could barely function. We could have a long conversation about the psychological themes in that movie, the political themes. Oh, yeah. That's a whole. How how people deal with unknown and uh, yeah. I'm like getting anxiety just talking about this. Gosh. Oh, shout out to K10 and shout out to all you again for listening here, being curious about mental health, asking these great questions. I'm so grateful for you, Kristen, sharing your trauma story, sharing with us. And again, I hope if you're out there listening, I know a lot of people can be like, is it going to get better? And what's it going to take? For any one of us, we're on our own journeys and we don't exactly know what combination of things. But I know for sure if I've learned anything from my own trauma and being a therapist that we all deserve to be seen, heard, and validated. Yeah. And if we, if you haven't gotten that, I think a great place for you is likely therapy. Mm-hmm. You might get it out of therapy and I hope you do. But for me, this is why having space to process our trauma and and talk about it with another person is so important. Yes, for sure. Kristen, remind everyone how they can follow you. You guys can follow me on Instagram at TikTok. It's not your average therapist, T-H-R-P-S-T. And you can give me a follow there. You can also follow me on Welcome to Group Therapy Pod, 
where me, Dr. J, Dr. Jessica Rabin, and Dr. Kristen Casey, because I didn't want to do a dissertation over there. We're all doing fun things over there, making fun, making fun content, fun podcasts. So also watch us over there. Thank y'all so much. Like, share, review, and we'll see y'all next time. <laughs>